0: This is an ABC podcast.
1: Hello there, I'm Tom Switzer. Lovely to have your company. And this is Between the Lines. Later in the program, Danielle Pletka on Iran's march towards equal treatment of women and the threat that the protests pose to the hardline Iranian theocracy.
0: This is not simply about women's rights and women's freedom and women's treatment. What was most fascinating to me at the beginning was the fact that conservative women, in other words, women who don't object to wearing a headscarf, women who are very much conservative religiously, were joining the demonstrations because they were sick and tired of being told what to do, of being second-class citizens in Iran.
1: That's Daniel Pletka on the most unsettled moment in the life of the Islamic Republic of Iran. Stay with us for that. But first, how do political dramas in Westminster affect the broader crisis of conservatism across the Western world? Well, the British Conservative Party, it's the most successful political party in democratic history. It's governed for about two-thirds of the past two centuries. And when you think about the changes that the world's experienced over the last two centuries, that's quite remarkable. So the Tory party can adapt, and uh, it's uh, been very successful. Two-thirds of the past two centuries, it's been in power. It's also fair to say that the Tories have produced most of Britain's great prime ministers. However, recently, and this is pretty obvious, I think, it's resembled nothing so much as a pub brawl. (laughs) Everyone, however grand or obscure, has felt entitled to join into the pub brawl. Now, talk has been rife that the party of Disraeli, Churchill, Thatcher, that will split, and a view is emerging that unless the Tories regain their will to govern and their ability to connect with the British people... The splintering of the Conservative Party, well, that looks frighteningly likely. But something else is at issue here. Do the Tories' troubles, do they reflect a more general problem with the centre-right parties in the Anglosphere? I'm talking philosophically speaking. At the heart of the matter is the extent of the divisions. Tories, you see, they seem divided between the small ill-liberal Remainers and the conservative Brexiteers, Republicans... In America they're divided between mainstream conservatives and Trumpian populists and as for Australian liberals well we saw this at the last federal election didn't we they're divided between the conservative rank-and-file and those metropolitan constituents who voted teal in Melbourne Sydney and Perth and even green in Brisbane well today we'll hear three views from not just Britain but Australia and America so let's get started Richard Tice is the leader of the Reform UK Party. That was previously known as the Brexit Party. <coughs> Richard has been a major player in the Brexit debates. In 2016, he led the effort, and in 2018, he led the Leave Means Leave effort. Welcome to Australia, Richard.
2: Great to be here,
3: thank you, Tom.
1: Henry Olsen is a Washington Post columnist and a senior fellow at the Ethics and Public Policy Centre in Washington. Henry, great to see you again.
3: Thanks for having me back.
1: And in Melbourne, John Roskam is a senior fellow at the Institute of Public Affairs and a columnist with the Australian Financial Review. G'day, John. Hello, Tom. Now, Richard, we know that Rishi Sunak is the youngest British PM in centuries. He's also the richest PM and Britain's first Hindu leader. What else can you tell us about your new Prime Minister?
2: The key thing is to focus on his track record. And so far he has shown, because he was Chancellor of the Exchequer in charge of our finances for the recent years through the Covid period, he's shown himself to be what I call, and I invented the word, a con-socialist. (laughs) <laughs> so he is, uh, we have two types of socialists in our main parties in the UK. We've got the red socialists and we've now got the con socialists who used to be conservatives. <laughs> He's a tax and spend guy. Yeah. We've got the highest taxes for 70 years. We've got the highest government spending for over 50 years. And we've got the lowest growth for about 30 years, f- sorry, for 70s years. So this is a guy whose track record in leading the finances frankly, is, is woeful. It's very unconservative. And already, within two days of taking office, he's reneged on one of the key commitments he made throughout his campaign to be Prime Minister that he lost, which was with regard to uh, fracking of shale gas in the UK. And having said that he supported it, he's now said that actually, no, he's going to reinstate the ban,
1: And we'll talk about how climate and energy fits into this story later on in the segment. But your argument then, Richard, just to clarify, is that the Tories have become a big government tax and spend uh, policy agenda party. And uh, this precedes Liz Truss, of course. John, the conventional wisdom would disagree. The conventional wisdom, certainly if you read The Guardian uh, and The New York Times and follow the BBC, they say, John, that Liz Truss's tax cuts, uh, that's what's caused the market trouble and that in turn caused her downfall. So the Tories embrace of free market economics has, has come back to haunt them. Is that narrative plausible?
4: Well, it is the narrative, Tom, of the left establishment, but it's not a view I share. The challenge for centre-right parties is that we have become complacent about reform, that tax cuts Slowing the growth of the state, reducing red tape has delivered unprecedented prosperity, but people do not understand it's those sorts of policies that have delivered that prosperity. Liz Truss's mistake and Kwasi Kauteng's mistake was in the execution. It was in not explaining to the public why this was necessary. It was in not explaining the dire situation of British finances, as Richard was just talking about. And it was then going in hiding after you deliver a mini budget that was, I would argue, the necessary reform the UK has to take. The tragedy Mm -hmm. of of Liz Truss and her government is that, as I've written, it has put economic liberalism on the back foot. It will scare off centre-right politicians from talking honestly to the public about what is necessary. And I think it's an tragedy for centre-right politics around the world, what happened to Liz Truss and her government.
1: Well, Britain is on track to be the worst-performing major economy next year because, as the free marketeers like John Roskam and Richard Tice would say, uh, Henry Olsen, uh, unsound interventionist big government uh, Tory policies, uh, and that's not to mention the net zero policy that's contributed heavily to energy shortages, and, of course, the failure of the central banks to control. So is it a bit rich to blame free market economics for Britain's problems?
3: Well, I think it's a bit rich to blame free market economics for Britain's problems, but I think you also have to recognise that... Over the last decades, we've seen people with lower degrees of education increasingly come under financial stress. They've uh, come under uh, lower growths of income. They face competition from foreigners, whether it be through immigration at home or through outsourcing of manufacturing abroad. And they want it stopped. They want protection. And a free market movement, a center right movement that cannot deliver what these vote or will not deliver, what these voters want, cannot have a majority because you cannot move to the left enough on questions like climate change and culture to capture back the sort of urban people who voted for teals here or vote for Lib Dems overseas. You must lean into this, and that means providing a different mix of free market economics than Thatcher did.
1: So, Richard Tice, does that mean this Tory MP is right when he tweets, quote, The free market experiment is over. It's been a low point in our party's history. The reset begins, Richard Tice.
2: Extraordinary statement from someone who claims to be a conservative. That proves my point, Tom, that he's not. He's actually a socialist. He is a con-socialist. He doesn't believe that actually growth is the only way that you can get yourself out of this economic crisis. You're so lucky in Australia, you have growth rates of three, three and a half percent. You're worried if it drops below 2%. Mm. In the UK at the moment, we're grateful if we're lucky enough to get to one and a half percent or more, that's utterly hopeless. You have to cut taxes, you have to cut daft unnecessary regulation, you have to go for growth. Liz Truss was right in principle she utterly failed, as you indicated, on the execution. She's done massive damage to the cause, but we at Reform, we will be taking up that, uh, that matter. And what you have to do is you have to make ordinary working-class people's lives better, you have to make them wealthier, you have to make them realise that there is a huge benefit from going to work, from working hard, uh, for
1: your families and your communities. Let's keep with the subject of divisions before we broaden the conversation. I'm struck that if you look at the Tories, they they were in power from uh, 1979 to 1997. So these were the Thatcher major years, two prime ministers in 18 years. This time the Tories have been in power since 2010, so they've had five prime ministers in 12 years. Indeed, five prime ministers in the past six years makes Australia look pretty good. Uh, Richard, um, what do you think is uh, responsible here? Because many people would say it's the Brexit. That's that's the taproot of the crisis. You're a leading Brexiteer. How would you respond to that argument?
2: Look, I think the bottom line is weak leadership. It's nothing less than weak leadership over the last 12 years. And essentially, the UK at the moment is going through a phase where almost nothing works whether it's law and order, whether it's healthcare, care, whether it's uh, the tax system, whether it's the lack of growth, uh, the trains, just lots of things are not working and it's, it's bad management, it's weak leadership under a conservative, uh, conservative government. And many people are quite rightly beginning to say, what's the point of you if you're that bad? Let's look elsewhere. And people are either looking to the other socialists, the Labour Party, or they're saying, well, there must be an alternative out there. And I'm delighted that in the last couple of weeks, we've been recruiting thousands and thousands of disaffected Tory members into our party. And we're saying, look, there is an alternative. There is a better way
1: of doing things. John Roskam, you're a keen student of British political history. What do you think are the roots of today's Tory infighting? Is it it just Brexit, or do they go back to the Thatcher era when there were deep divisions between the so-called wets and dries. And just to clarify for those listeners who aren't aware of these terms, dries mean the pro-markets, pro-deregulation uh, faction within the Tory party, and the wets were the more paternalistic uh, pro-European uh, faction in the Tory party. So how do you explain for these deep divisions in Brit- among British conservatives? John Roskam. Tom, I think you put your finger on it.
4: Which is that the paternalism strain of conservatism in the UK and the Liberal Party here in Australia uh, still runs strong. Margaret Thatcher uh, didn't necessarily command a majority of MPs for her policies. the Tory party, the Liberal party here to some extent, as you indicated in your introduction, the Republicans too, um, are suffering from an ideological confusion mm. as the world around them is changing and Cultural issues are coming to the fore, as as Henry identified. Um, and you've also got another phenomenon, which is the separation of the political class from the electorate and voters. And the point has been made in the three English-speaking democracies that we're talking about, that the members of the political class, whether they're Democrat, Republican, Labor, Tory, Labor or Liberal here in Australia, have often more in common with each other than they do with the people who voted for them. So all of these things are coming together to produce the ideological confusion that we are witnessing right
1: now. Yes, uh, is it more complicated, Henry Olsen, in the sense that the the, the root of these divisions, and, and it's not just the Conservative Party divisions in Britain, the Republican Party divisions in the United States, and of course, as John just mentioned, the Liberal Party divisions here in Australia, is the issue here that these centre-right parties are trying to reconcile themselves to a realignment in politics and the economy? Henry Olson.
3: There's a global realignment going on outside the Anglosphere. It's something that's happening in the entire Western world, that elites who are doing well in the last 20 years are tending to coalesce around uh, center-left parties or centrist parties like Teal Independence. And working-class voters who used to be on the left want something different. They want national identity. They want a government that cares about them socially and economically and a center-right movement that can marry that with uh, respect for markets and uh, and private property can uh, take it home to the bank. That's where the future lies.
1: Richard, uh, with Rishi Sunak as Prime Minister, I mean, the Tories did so well in 2019 when they won over those Labour working-class constituencies, so-called Red Wall Tories in the Midlands and Northern England. Do you think that uh, Rishi Sunak at number 10, that Red Wall Toryism is now dead?
2: It is. It's finished. It's over. And as Henry just touched on, the thing is, the difference now is that working-class voters, people want to know that their lives are going to get better. And what they're seeing is you've got the the global elite whose lives are getting better, but for ordinary working-class people across the Western world, particularly in the UK, actually, things are getting worse. Energy costs are going through the roof. Food costs are going through the roof. Mm. And they're thinking... There must be a better way. There must be an alternative. And people are looking around. The tragedy is, if they say they're all as bad as each other, I'm not voting. What we're saying is, you've got to engage. You've got to encourage people to vote. Because actually, there are alternatives out there. And it's incredibly serious because the division grows. And the thing about the your traditional... Working class voter, they are very patriotic. They're deeply socially conservative. They want to believe in their beloved country, their beloved nation. And the globalists are actually trying to do away with borders, do away with those boundaries. And it's a, it's a completely divisive vision of the way forward.
1: So how do you and Nigel Farage uh, hope that your party reform can splinter the Tory party? What, what kind of message will you be sending over the course of the next two years before the general election?
2: We're very clear the uk great britain the uk is a fantastic nation that's got so much potential it's just being very badly led it's being badly managed it's being badly run and we can do so much better but we've got to we've got to have a self-reliant energy policy which is the critical issue affecting mm-hmm. so many people you're you're having these challenges here in australia yeah. it's even worse in the uk we're sitting on a century's worth of cheap energy treasure that we all own And yet we have decided not to be self-reliant on energy that we were for 25 years. We're now importing it from elsewhere. It's making us poorer. It's sending our jobs and our money overseas. People want to be patriotic. They want want to use our own energy.
1: Henry, do you think there are strong echoes in the US um, and the US political scene? And I I think you have written a bit about this in the Washington Post and elsewhere. But are there strong echoes here in what um, Richard's been saying that's been happening in Britain, in America, that is in the rise of a nationalist, populist, conservatism led by a lot of working-class voters who have been left behind.
3: Absolutely. And it's uh, something that's, again, happening worldwide. It's happening in continental Europe as well. It's not just an Anglosphere thing. And what working-class voters want is they want a government that will look out for them. And that means helping them where they need help, which is subsidies for things like education and health. It means a active labor market that uh, allows them to make a first world living and not have to compete with third-world labour. And then they want the government to get out of the way because they know that the private sector creates jobs. But you have to have a foot in both buckets, and that's what working-class voters are wanting, and the nationalism is a way of expressing that because it means that the nation cares for all of its own.
1: John Roskam, bearing in mind everything that Richard Tice and Henry Olson have said about the British and the American conservative scene, uh, echoes here in Australia. I mean, how does the Liberal Party under Peter Dutton balance those liberal metropolitan electorates? And, you know, this is Wentworth, Warringah, North Sydney, McKellar in Sydney, Kooyong, Higgins, Goldstein in Melbourne, uh, Curtin in Perth, of course, Brisbane and Rhine that went green. How does Dutton balance those electorates that voted teal at the last election with the more culturally conservative, working-class constituencies that are very nervous about the Labor Party? John Roskam. He can't.
4: Uh, The future of the Liberal Party, the future of conservatism in Australia does not lead through inner-city metropolitan elite wealthy seats. Analysis the Institute of Public Affairs has has done on the 2022 election reveals that those so-called teal seats the Liberals who lost six of them, have very, very different interests from most Labor voters and most Liberal voters. Now, the challenge for the Liberal Party is, in its former heartland seats, is where the bulk of its membership is, it's where its history is, and it's where the bulk of the fundraising is. But that is not the future of the Liberal Party. The Liberal Party, I would argue, is not about representing the interests and post material concerns of wealthy, elite, well educated population. Menzies talked about the forgotten people. The forgotten people don't live in Kuyong and Wentworth. They live mm-hmm. in the outer suburbs, in the regions where by and large they've been taken for granted by. All the parties, Labor Party, National Party and Liberal Party.
1: So just to clarify, you're suggesting that the Liberals forget about those progressive suburban Liberals and focus on winning over those Labor electorates fed up with, say, cancel culture and identity politics. Is that your line? That's,
4: that's exactly my line, Tom. And I've, I've said this. Um, the Liberals trying to get back Kuyong and Wentworth is like the Republicans trying to get back Manhattan. It won't happen. <laughs> it can't happen. And it shouldn't happen. Richard Tice.
2: I would say the way that you unify it, and I think it's common everywhere, is that hard work pays, entrepreneurship pays, that actually, if you're setting up a small business, whether it's as a tradesperson, a tech person or whatever, that actually success is worth going for. It motivates you and that you can keep more of your own success in your own pocket, in your own bank balance, for your own family, and I think that's a huge unifier as well as that belief that actually, you should be left to run and lead your own lives rather than have big state bearing down on you, telling you what you've got to do, what you've got to say, what you've got to think. I think that's a huge unifier. Henry Olsen.
3: Yeah, I think that you need, I agree with John that you need to lean into the real alignment. You need to pick up support with working class and middle class voters who are the forgotten people. But I think what you need to understand is that most of these people aren't entrepreneurs. Most of these people are uh, people who simply want to work 9 to 5. They want to have a comfortable life. They want to have a decent family. They want to have a decent and safe community. And you need to speak to those values. And uh, their aspiration is to be ordinary, not to be extraordinary. And if you don't reach into that value system you don't resonate as people who can be trusted to represent their own self-perceived interests.
1: If I hear you all three of you correctly you're you're basically saying that there's a great opportunity here for center right parties the republicans in the united states the tories in britain the liberals here in australia to convert traditional working class blue collar voters to the conservative side. But let's be frank, a lot of these voters that we're talking about, they're more sceptical of free trade, they're more sceptical of immigration, and they're more sceptical of tax cuts for business. Doesn't that contradict the notion of being a centre-right party? John Roskam? Tom, you
4: are correct. It is a major challenge. But at the same time, I would argue it's a challenge that can be overcome by explaining why... Tax cuts are beneficial because you keep more of your own money and you make your own choices. Um, We've touched on immigration, I think, Uh, the conservative side of politics has to understand the deep concern that rests in many parts of at least Australia in relation to the very high levels of immigration that are being run at the moment. And then you meet the challenge by, as Henry said, speaking to cultural values, which by and large, since Tony Abbott, uh, the Liberals in Australia have absolutely refused to engage with.
1: Richard Tice, Boris Johnson did a very good job of winning over those working-class voters in 2019, but was that just a fluke in the sense that he needed to get Brexit done and that resonated with our constituency that voted for Brexit in 2016? And also he did face a very weak socialist leader in Jeremy Corbyn.
2: He was a great salesman, a fantastic salesman, one of the best. And people were exhausted with the fighting over Brexit. So he was a bit of a lucky general in that sense. And the point about immigration is that you want it to work for your own country. So where you've got skills shortages, genuine labor shortages, fine, let's have immigration until you train up your own people. But the point about immigration, it's gotta be a net benefit to existing people living in any country, whether it's Australia, whether it's the UK, and that, frankly, isn't working. And then you've got the huge quantities of illegal immigration that we're seeing in the UK with the uh, the illegal immigrants crossing the channel. And that's, that's costing the UK billions of billions of pounds. I think the point, though, is that ordinary people, and I would say, actually, their entrepreneurial element is running their own family as they see fit. Mm. And the point about cutting taxes is you cut taxes for the least well-off, the lowest paid the most. I would lift the personal income tax threshold in the UK from twelve and a half grand to £20,000. That's an extra £30 pounds a week in ordinary families' pockets. That's real cash that makes a difference. It's what I call bubble-up economics, the least well-off benefit the most, that makes a huge difference.
1: Henry Olsen.
2: That's exactly
3: right, Richard. One of the things I think that Liz Truss got wrong was she was cutting taxes for the wealthiest, uh, but politically successful center-right parties, including the Liberal Party, uh, when it was cutting taxes, were cutting taxes from the bottom up. And that's why Richie Sunak, I really question whether he's got, it, because he's the person who put in the NIC tax rise, which uh, is a a payroll tax that was basically, we're going to make working-class Britons pay so that upper-class Britons don't have to pay more for their, don't have to sell their posh homes in the South to pay for their nursing home care. It was the ultimate in anti-class warfare that was a finger in the eye to the Red Wall voter. And I think Richard's sort of discussions of entrepreneurialism is the way to bring that message in a tangible way home.
1: Henry Olson is the author of The Working Class Republican, Ronald Reagan and the Return of Blue Collar Conservatism. John Roskam is a columnist with the Australian Financial Review. And Richard Tice is leader of the UK Reform Party and a former member of the European Parliament who helped lead the Brexit vote in 2016. Now, you would have been elected to Parliament in... What, 2017? Uh, 2019. 2019? You didn't stay there no, very we, long. No, we didn't want to stay there. We were trying to escape.
2: So I was only a MEP for, member of the European Parliament for about eight months. Goodness. And then we, we basically fired ourselves. It was fantastic. <laughs> it was the only meaningful vote I got to cast, was to make myself redundant.
1: Well, let's uh, turn to the subject of climate change. Now, where does climate change fit in here? It's obviously a big issue uh, politically across the Anglosphere and has been for the best part of a decade. Decade. And now, with the election of Anthony Albanese's government, uh, the policy to accelerate decarbonisation efforts are intensifying. John Roscombe, let me run this quote by you. This is Tony Abbott, the former Liberal Prime Minister. Now, when he lost his seat to a teal, essentially, in 2019, he said, quote, where climate change is a moral issue, we Liberals do it tough. But where climate change is an economic issue we do very, very well. John Roskam. Tony
4: Abbott was right. Poll after poll indicates that if you ask Australians, do they support efforts to mitigate the impacts of climate change? They will say yes. When you ask them how much will they pay for it, the vast majority say very, very little. Um, Climate change is an issue uh, that can unite the disparate parts of the electorates that we've just been talking about. Uh, It is an issue that conservatives by and large, other than in the US, have been reluctant to confront, either on the science or the economics or on the practicalities. Um, And Australians are going to be witnessing what is happening in the UK now. The mini-budget or the budget of uh, uh, Jim Chalmers as Labor Treasurer identified power bills are likely to be going up by 50%. Now, Australians don't understand that, but they will when it starts to hit their hip pocket.
1: Yet climate change, Henry Olsen, or more specifically the Morrison government's alleged failure to slash our carbon emissions more ambitiously, that helped explain why so many small L liberals abandoned the Liberal Party at the last federal election, particularly in Melbourne and Sydney. So isn't that a problem for centre- right parties?
3: It's a problem for center-right parties in that they need to show that they are doing something through the government to combat it. And I think the Swedish government, that's a center-right government, is going to provide an interesting example. Their approach is going to be to re-nuclearize Sweden, which had ban- taken its nuclear reactors offline. They say, we're going to lower net carbon emissions by retransferring the electricity en- uh, sector to nuclear energy. And that's a way of being both self-reliant, and it's a way of being green without harming resource extraction or increasing prices at the pump for petrol. And it'll be interesting to see. I would advise center-right parties to do that, embrace nuclear for mm. electricity and uh, put money into battery research so that batteries can store more uh, electricity from renewables and completely put your uh, your energy behind energy exploration, energy exportation, and resource extraction. So that you say the way to balance climate change with economic stability is by investment in new technology and by nuclearization and let them own the, no, you have to suffer in order to save the planet.
1: Yes, well, uh, the the, the carbon emissions of the non-OECD are escalating dramatically. uh, And Donald Trump was widely panned for pulling the United States out of the Paris Uh, climate change accords, but US emissions under his administration went down something like six, seven percent. And it wasn't really to do with renewables. It was to do with fracking, the shale gas revolution. Tell us about that. And is it in danger now with the Biden administration?
3: I don't think fracking is in danger of, you know, fracking is not going to be banned under the Biden administration. The question is whether or not he's going to encourage it to expand. And there he's not. Uh And that's a problem. So it's not going to end fracking. You know, we just have such a huge country and so many different uh, ways to approach but, but sorry, it. So, if
1: you expand fracking in the United States, doesn't that mean the Americans, for the first time in a long time, is energy independent?
3: Yes, I mean we're almost energy independent now, and Biden is wrong for not uh, for not allowing for expanded resource exploration. And that's one of the things that a center right and the Republican Party is on the right side of, saying no, we need to expand fracking. The the public wants to both deal with climate change. And extract natural resources, which is why a investment in battery and nuclearization of the private sector allows you to address the first moral concern mm. while endorsing natural resource exploration and not increasing the price of fossil fuels allows you to address the economic concern. You can have your
1: cake and eat it too. Malcolm Turnbull, the former Liberal Prime Minister uh, who who lost power in 2018, he all too often, and he's not alone, he praised Tory governments of Prime Ministers David Cameron, Theresa May, uh, Boris Johnson for their climate change policies. How's net zero emissions worked out in Britain? Richard Tyson. We all care about the environment. We all want cleaner air,
2: but the issue is that we've got to do it in a smart, affordable, and proportionate way. We all want to do our bit. The issue with net zero across much of the world, in particular in the UK, what I call Westminster's obsession with net zero, is it's making us net poorer. It's impoverishing the people, particularly the least well off, and therefore it's sending our jobs and our money overseas To do that, if you send your jobs and money overseas, that's net stupid. And people didn't vote to be poorer in order to reduce emissions. So we should be using technology in a smart, affordable way, nuclear, uh, cleaner fuels, cleaner filters, technologies, that can reduce emissions. But I say this key point, that ordinary people did not vote to get
1: poorer whilst they helped deal with emissions. John Roskam, isn't there a key difference here between Australia and Britain? I mean, we are, uh, well, the the Brits are a net importer of food and energy, whereas, of course, uh, we, although we're decarbonising the Australian economy, we're more than happy to export uh, gas and coal and iron ore across uh, the world, which means that... uh, Uh, our budget coffers are growing, how do you see the climate change debate affecting the Liberal Party over the next few years, given that um, there's clearly momentum in the capital markets to accelerate the decarbonisation agenda?
4: Well, there's a couple of points about that, Tom. I'm sceptical about the wisdom of capital markets. You might remember a few years ago, they told us that coal was a stranded asset, The reality is that when the Liberal Party and the Coalition campaigns and identifies the costs of climate change mitigation, it wins elections. Scott Morrison committed to net zero as a slogan because, as a Prime Minister, he didn't believe in very much at all and it made no difference at all to the Liberal Party result. Um, The future uh, for the Liberal Party and the Coalition has to be to embrace nuclear energy if it is not willing to confront the entire climate change debate. There's no indication that it is wanting to do that. So rather than Peter Dutton saying, well, we'll investigate and have a discussion about the possibility of nuclear power, um, the sooner the coalition commits to provide nuclear energy, nuclear electricity to Australian households, the sooner Um, The cost pressures are going to be lifted off working families. Um, It will divide at a political level the, the Labor Party and the Greens. And polls are starting to indicate that Australians are willing to have this conversation and
1: will tolerate nuclear energy. Finally, uh, Henry, you are one of uh, Washington's most seasoned observers of American politics. The the US House and the Senate, they face midterm elections soon. What are the prospects of the Republicans regaining both chambers of Congress?
3: They will regain both chambers of Congress. They'll win the Senate. They'll get a net gain of between one and four seats. I'm predicting three right now. And they'll have a very good night in the House of Representatives. They will easily retake control with a gain of somewhere between 20 and 35 seats in our 435-member chamber.
1: Yeah, the conventional wisdom is that the House will go Republican. But um, my understanding is it's still a bit iffy about the Senate. And that's mainly because the Republican Party has nominated as their Senate candidates Trump-like figures that alienate those very moderate mainstream conservative Republicans in the suburban areas of those big states.
3: Well, they would have a lock on the Senate had they not nominated some of those figures. That is certainly true. But what we're finding as the race gets closer is that Joe Biden and the Democrats remain extremely unpopular despite... Months of hammering on these candidates, the Democrats in those states, remain well below 50 percent, and the Republicans are either gaining in these states or they are leading. And I think on Election Day, they will end up winning those states. I think that they will win. Uh, Georgia with Herschel Walker. I think they'll win Pennsylvania with Dr. Mehmet Oz, particularly after his uh, opponent John Fetterman showed that the effects of his stroke render him essentially unable to communicate in a, a way needed for a US Senator. I think the Adam Laxalt will win Nevada and I think that Blake Masters has a great chance to win Arizona.
1: What about the issue of abortion? I mean this was the Roe v Wade was overturned by the Supreme Court. Doesn't that help Democrats? Uh,
3: what it's turned out is that the, uh, the, the center of public opinion in America is what I call weekly pro-choice, you know, which is to say that they like abortion in the first trimester, they don't like abortion afterwards, but they don't prioritize it in their voting. Democrats have spent hundreds of millions of dollars and the media industrial complex has given them mi- hundreds of millions of free airtime trying to elevate that importance. And every... Uh, every um, poll shows that independent voters don't prioritize it. They care about the economy. And you've now got senior Democrats saying, no, don't you understand? You should care about what we care about, which is the ultimate sin of talking down to the electorate. They've spent six months trying to make weekly pro-choice voters care more about that than the cost of living or crime or the crisis at the border, and they have failed.
1: Henry, Richard, John, thanks so much for being on the program. Thanks a lot for having me back,
3: Tom. Thank you. Thank you, Tom. Great to be with you.
1: That was British Reform Party leader Richard Tice and Washington columnist Henry Olson. We also heard from John Roscom, the former longtime head of the Institute of Public Affairs in Melbourne. Up next, Danielle Pletka on the Iranian protests. Well, the Islamic Republic of Iran it's seen protests and demonstrations before, but not like the scene sparked by the death in custody of 22-year-old Masa Amini, allegedly for breaking Iran's strict dress code. Now, have you seen those images of women burning their headscarves? Or the schoolgirls smashing photographs of Iran's leaders, even taunting the hardline president, Ibrahim Rahisi? Well, the protests are sweeping across many Iranian cities and pressure is intensifying on the Islamic Republic. Remember, it's a theocracy of ageing clerics led by the supreme leader, 83-year-old Ayatollah Ali Khamenei. Now, to address... Iran's march towards equal treatment of women and the threat that the protests posed to the Iranian theocracy. Let's turn to Danielle Pletka. She's a distinguished senior fellow in foreign and defense policy studies at the American Enterprise Institute in Washington. She also was born and briefly raised in Melbourne. Danny, welcome back to ABC Radio.
0: Oh, thank you so much for having me.
1: Now, just tell us quickly about Marsa Amini. Now, this is a young woman who died in September.
0: Right. So Masa Amini was actually is, is not from Tehran, which is where she was killed. She's a, a Kurdish Iranian from the Kurdish area, and she was visiting Tehran, the capital. And we are not entirely sure what happened uh, because the government story has changed. But she was um, ostensibly not wearing uh, her hijab, her headscarf properly and the police that enforce morality so to speak quote unquote in Mm. in in iran arrested her she was beaten up very severely she ended up having to be hospitalized and three days later she was dead they told her parents that she died of heart trouble but wouldn't release her body it was absolutely clear what had happened people knew People were already demonstrating outside the hospital where she was, and those demonstrations have spread throughout the country and been going on for almost six weeks now.
1: Well, these protests started as a protest really over what happened to this young lady at the hands of, as you say, the so-called morality police. But is that the tip of the iceberg in terms of what's continuing to drive the protests?
0: so i think that it it is a little bit of a of an alignment that's going on which is why they've continued for so long this is not simply about women's rights and women's freedom and women's treatment. What was most fascinating to me at the beginning was the fact that conservative women, in other words, women who don't object to wearing a headscarf, women who are very much conservative religiously, were joining the demonstrations because they were sick and tired of being told what to do, of being second-class citizens in Iran. Now in the last few days we've seen strikes declared both on university campuses by teachers and as well by energy workers you've got a lot of people of all different works walks of life who are gathering together and it's not just about Headscarf anymore. It's about living under an oppressive dictatorship. And this is what you see in the slogans. You see, down with the Ayatollahs, down with the Islamic Republic, not just about women's rights. It's really quite remarkable.
1: Yes, so they're burning their scarves in public, they're burning symbols of state violence against women, but it's more than that, they're burning symbols of the Islamic Republic itself now. Ibrahim Rahisi, he stepped into the presidency last year. He's a hardliner, Danny. What does that tell you about where the protests may go or where the government response may go? And I'm thinking specifically of the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps.
0: Well, that's the perfect question because, you know, look, for those of us who who have seen hardline, tyrannical governments fall, whether they were, you know, captives of the Soviet Empire or it was during the Arab Spring, one of the key ingredients here that is required is the defection of the security forces. It is the security forces no longer being willing to enforce the writ of the hardline government. And we are absolutely not seeing that. You're right to identify Raisi as a particularly hardline president who was installed as somebody who's sympathetic to the supreme leader. He had, in fact, himself been a candidate to be supreme leader at at a certain moment. And we are not seeing a lot of breaks in the security forces. Yes, the whole country has gathered up. Yes, they've got momentum. Yes, there have been probably more than 200 people killed by security forces. But still, the government is, I would say, still holding on, held up by And protected by not just the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps, but by all of the instruments of power, the besieged, the morality police and others. Well,
1: well, where does the Ayatollah Khamenei fit in here? He's the supreme leader. He's been very ill. He recently cancelled all his meetings. I mean, this just makes one think from afar that this feels like a, a more unsettled moment than we've seen sometime in Iran.
0: No, I think you're absolutely right. I think this is one of the most unsettled moments that we've seen in Iran since the revolution. And I think the regime wow. is worried. You're, you're exactly right that Ayatollah Khamenei, who has long been known to be not very well, um, was probably hospitalized. But there was some gossip that he might actually be on the verge of death. To give you a sense of 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 how— delicate this moment is um, hardliners between the um, religious and the security forces were jostling um, through their newspapers and through letters for influence, which made it clear that they wanted to be in the catbird seat in order to declare who would be the next supreme leader. He's since reappeared He's trying to give a couple of conciliatory speeches, but they haven't delivered the goods. And so a very, very dangerous moment. I hope, I hope and pray for the regime.
1: Yes. I mean, there was an the Iranian athlete. She was given a, a hero's welcome just recently when she returned to Tehran. Uh, she just completed in a... Um, Uh, I think it was a competitive climbing event in South Korea, and she was not wearing the mandatory Islamic headscarf or hijab. So that's a significant moment. Danielle Pletka is from the American Enterprise Institute in Washington. She's also the co-host of the podcast, What The Hell Is Going On? It's making sense of the world. And we're talking about the unprecedented protests in Iran, which as Danny just mentioned, they pose the most significant challenge to the Islamic Republic in decades. Now, Danny, the Iranian people, of course, they've previously risked their lives for freedom from the clerical Iranian regime. Uh, a good example, of course, was the 2009, the protests then, they were in response to the allegations of a rigged presidential election. Just remind us, how did the Obama administration respond to those protests in 2009?
0: Right. So this has actually been my biggest fear is that is the memory of that. So, you know, for people who don't pay obsessive attention to the personnel and politics of Washington, D.C., first of all, I compliment you. Good luck to you. (laughs) But (laughs) but, but for For people like me who remember that all too clearly, we had these. Huge demonstrations that were taking place were during what was called the Green Revolution in Iran mm-hmm. in two thousand nine, as you said correctly, the response to a stolen election. And the Obama administration, newly minted, newly in office, does almost nothing. It takes them almost two weeks to even comment. When the president finally comments about it, he's very sort of, you know, he gives it a sentence and a half and not more. Why? Because the the Obama administration and all of the people, the Biden staff, President Obama staff, they are now senior people within the Biden administration. All of them counseled the president that it was more important to have a nuclear deal than it was to support the Iranian people in their quest for freedom. I worry a lot that we're going to see that replayed. So far, I should say, in fairness to the Biden administration, it doesn't look like the talks are going anywhere. Especially with the complication, as you know, Tom, of Ukraine and Iran now arming the the uh, the Russians with um, with Iranian drones. But but I do worry that the Iranians are going to suddenly say, "Oh my God, we need the money. Maybe we should really we rest- start with the Biden administration."
1: If the Biden administration does actually renew this Iranian nuclear deal, and let's remember Donald Trump scrapped it a few years ago, won't Washington just strengthen Tehran's hand at a time when it's most vulnerable? I mean, why do this at a time when Biden has self-evidently aggravated America's traditional ally, Saudi Arabia?
0: Well, look, I don't know what the answer to that question is. This is not how I see the world. Look, why why would they do that now? It really depends on how you see the world ordered. If your philosophy is that Nothing in the Middle East has worked properly for the last 60 years, and peace with Iran could, in fact, really open up a new era in which the Americans can pivot away and pay attention to the evil Chinese and the evil Russians and not be bothered by the evil Middle Easterners, you know, if that's your mentality— Then you move ahead and back to uh, and back to nuclear talks with the with the Iranians. That's certainly the line that's been advocated by their senior most negotiator with Iran, Rob Malley. I don't think he's gotten that much traction inside the administration at this very moment, but we'll see. It could happen at any time.
1: Okay, back to Tehran. Now behind the Ayatollah lies the backbone of the 1979 revolution. This is the what I mentioned before, the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps. Now that was formed to defend the Islamic Republic and its power has been growing year after year over the past four decades. What's the extent of its power now? So this is
0: an, another very important question. I think that it is safe to argue that the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps is not simply the guardian of regime security. It is also the most important manager and strategist in Iranian foreign policy. Right? These are the guys who not they don't simply protect the Ayatollah and his regime and the system of the Islamic Republic. They also manage through their uh, subsidiary Quds Force all of the terrorist organizations that are familiar names to your listeners, Hamas, Hezbollah. These are the guys who who fund and who arm the what are called the Popular Mobilization Units, the Shabi in Iraq. These really, in many ways, are the guardians of Iran's malign domestic and foreign policy.
1: Having said all of that, is there an anti-clerical current in the ranks of that Revolutionary Guard?
0: Oh, absolutely. And this actually played out years ago when When that stolen election in 2009 was handed to Mahmoud Ahmadinejad, he, in fact, replaced half his cabinet um, with members of the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps and got rid of clerics. And we see this again. I think you're absolutely right to suggest that inside the IRGC, there is a military dictatorship in the offing. And this is one of the questions that I ask a lot of our experts and, and our colleagues is, okay. Let's say that the ayatollahs are gone. What happens if we end up with a military dictatorship in the hands of the IRGC? And I think that opens up a whole different can of worms. It's really a very serious concern.
1: So you're suggesting a military dictatorship, but with a civilian, not clerical face. But surely thanks to these protests, I mean, some are saying we could be witnessing the beginning of the end of the Iranian regime itself. From their mouth to
0: God's ears. I hope that that I hope that that's something that that we can that that we can look towards. I think this is the most dangerous moment for them in 43 years. But I'll say mm. this: I don't see the regime crumbling yet. Could we do something to help accelerate it? Could U.S. policy help accelerate it? Could we finally sanction them for selling oil to China? against US sanctions, could we finally crack down on them and really, really turn the screws on the regime at a very vulnerable moment? Sure we could. Are we? Not as far as I can tell.
1: Danny, always great to be with you. Oh, it's such a pleasure
0: to talk to you, Tom.
1: Danielle Pletka is a distinguished senior fellow in foreign and defence policy studies at the American Enterprise Institute in Washington. And that's just about it, but in our next episode, Mary Eberstadt on the threat that identity politics poses to Western liberal discourse.
5: It's on a collision course with the way we govern ourselves. Identity politics says that the most important thing about an individual is their victimhood. And right there, we have a denial of the idea that we are here to work together, to compromise to muddle along and reach some kind of social consensus. In a world in which everyone is divided into oppressors or oppressed, there is no redemption. There is no common cause. And that's the problem with identity politics. It is destructive of the democratic project itself. Victimization and identitarian groups have been around for decades. They were around when I was on campus uh, several decades ago now. but. I think they have more gravitational pull than ever before because that question, who am I, used to be easily answered in a world where families were strong and communities, including religious communities, were strong. Today, we can't assume any of those uh, background facts about any given individual, and so The less gravitational pull these conventional centers of identity have become, the more frantic has become the search for a substitute. And that, I think, is what we're seeing in identity politics, especially on campus and especially among the young. They are looking for figurative families in a time when literal families are in disarray.
1: Author of Primal Screams, How the Sexual Revolution Created Identity Politics, my guest on the next episode of Between the Lines. Well, that's it for the show. And just a reminder that if you want to listen to this program again, or to previous ones, just go to ABC Listen app and search for Between the Lines podcast, which you can download for free. I'm Tom Switzer. Until next time, bye for now.